Cause we're the Houston Oilers Houston Oilers Houston Oilers number one Yes, we're the Houston Oilers Houston Oilers Houston Oilers to Battle Red Radio. I'm at Weston, and tonight I'm joined by absolutely nobody. It's just me. Uh, I didn't want to drag anybody else into this mess that was this completely, like, silly and uh, very inconsequential football game between the Houston Texans and Cincinnati Bengals. And the person I wanted to have come on the show wasn't able to as well. So rather than drag somebody else down to hell, uh, it will just be me tonight talking to you as you do whatever it is that you're doing. But we're all professionals here. We'll make it work. And hopefully this won't devolve into a bunch of schizophrenic ramblings. It could. I don't think it will, but the potential is there um, for this. So last season, the Texans won games because Justin Reed tackled Leonard Fournette at the goal line on a two-point conversion attempt against Jacksonville. There was a holding penalty negate, that negated a Mike Williams reception on Phillip Rivers' game-tying drive attempt. Houston de- debuted a new offense they never ran before against Kansas City Chiefs that caught them off guard. Deshaun Watson threw a touchdown pass with his eyeball dangling out of his orbital bone against Oakland, who is now Las Vegas. The Colts continued to establish the run with Jonathan Williams on Thursday Night Football. And Jacoby Brissett was stopped a yard short on a fourth-down conversion by Brandon Scarlett. Um, which is a hilarious play that I kind of forgot about until looking back at some things that happened last season earlier today. Uh, the Patriots' receivers were so atrocious that even Houston played man coverage against them last year. Justin remained all-time great play along the goal line to hit Anthony Ferkser, pop the ball out, which led to a Whitney Merciless interception. They took over to you know t- Tennessee side of the field instead of a Houston touchdown, which was a 14-point swing that really made the difference in that game. And then, of course, in the postseason, Deshaun Watson turned a car crash into a Taewon Jones dump off, and Josh Allen will fool Josh Allen. Uh, and Houston's postseason win over Buffalo last year in the wildcard round. So last season, Houston went 9-3 in one-score games, including the postseason. In 2020, Houston's currently 2-7. and seven. And this year, Houston's lost games because they continue to establish the run against Pittsburgh. Instead of sticking with that spread, no huddle, no huddle quick-passing offense that worked really well for them that game, um, they also couldn't stop a single-power run play where Matt Leiter just like continuously pulled and turned the corner and uh, and turned the edge and was able to lock down that and allow some easy kind of bounce runs for Pittsburgh's running backs that game two to kill the clock. Um, Will Fuller couldn't make a one-hand catch against Minnesota after David Johnson flailed in the red zone. A.J. Brown made a one-hand catch that Will Fuller couldn't make earlier in the year to tie the game against Tennessee. And then Derrick Henry, of course, caught a dump-off pass that he took, you know, in Houston's territory, that was the result of Brandon Dunn being the flat defender on that route, which is just so absolutely wonderful. Um, it was too windy to throw the ball in Cleveland. They lost 10-3. Nick Martin skid a snap across the turf against Indy. Kiki Cutie was tackling behind against Indy and fumbled to the end zone, uh, thanks to Darius Leonard. And now, because Charlie Heck was beat around the edge in his debut by Sam Hubbard, and Hubbard was able to force fumble against Deshaun Watson on his game-tying came tying drive attempt against Cincinnati. The Texans are now 4-11 as a result. So this was another 
really dumb loss. Um, again, the Houston Texans went from nine and three in one score games to two and seven in the same set of circumstances. And the Texans, you know, record this year has slipped from eleven to five to four and eleven. And that's the main reason why um, the Texans had a team last year that was very overrated. Their win loss record didn't really match the production performance that they had. But they were able to have the record they had because they won these close games that they're no longer winning. And so, like, whenever you take that, like, I had a big sort of, like, question about the regression stats whenever I first learned about them because I was like, is this just something that's going to occur that you can't do anything about? And I really kind of cracked my head open thinking about this when I was, like, I don't know, 20 years old or whatever. And what I kind of came to the realization was, was that, well, it's not that, but it's a tool to know how good your football team actually is. So if you're the Houston Texans and you go 11 and five and you're nine and three and one score games and you know you give up a and you give up the loss that they had against Kansas City in the postseason, an accurate assessment of your roster isn't that oh we're like two players away from being a Super Bowl team. Look how close we were um, against Kansas City. You know after all the insane things that happened for them to be in that spot to begin with. Really, what instead your understanding is to be is that. We won. We have the record that we had. We found ourselves in the spot that we were in because of all these extenuating circumstances. And no, our football team isn't as good as we think it is. And we have to, you know, get better this offseason, which should be the goal of every offseason. But this can't be a team where we have like keep the same roster and we just expect to have the same performance next year. And that's what the Texans did. And they got actively worse last offseason by signing Eric Murray and and cutting to Sean Gibson by losing DJ Reader in free agency. And of course, by training Andre Hopkins for David Johnson, a second round pick, which became Brandon Cooks and Ross Blacklock. And they got actively worse this offseason. And now they're not having the same sort of uh, one score record. And the team is kind of falling apart and led to Bill O'Brien being fired. And it was, you know, two of their losses in their own four start were in their own four start were games that they won the year before. You know, in 2019, Will Fuller isn't out there making that catch. DeAndre Hopkins makes that catch. In 2019, um, you know, Deshaun Watson comes up with a miracle play, and the Texans have a good run defense, and they're able to you know, make a run stop to be able to get Watson the ball again. And you know, he does some miraculous, and they win that game, for example. And you know, this year, the same sort of things been happening. And Watson's the difference this year, though, is like Watson's teammates have actively let him down and have even given him the opportunity to you know, make the plays that he could make um, for Houston to win. And we saw that with. Martin snap. We saw that with QB fumble, and we saw that again this week with uh, Charlie Hex miss block, which led to the forced fumble this week as well too. And I I kind of like think about after having this loss occur, you kind of go through and kind of compartmentalize them and rank them. And I is there's no doubt in my mind that the worst loss this year and the funniest loss this year was Nick Martin skinned the snap against uh against the Indianapolis Colts. And you know Nick Martin's skin mark has to be the funniest one because one it's against the Colts and like. I've watched thousands of football games over the course of my life. I try to watch every single condensed game every week and watch the entire league as a whole. And I've never, ever, ever seen or could even imagine a football team losing a game because of a, a bad snap from the center at the two-yard line like they did. And Houston pulled it off, and um, it was so extremely beautiful. And like ever since then, we've just been living in the afterglow of that moment. So Watson this week, he was 24-33 for 324 yards. He had three touchdowns to zero interceptions. And all this was inspired losing Larry Tunzel to a foot injury, who was replaced by Robert Johnson. And they put Robert Johnson, moved him from right tackle, left tackle, since Tyus Howard was still out with a concussion. 
which led Charlie Heck playing at right tackle. Um, Heck was drafted in the fourth round last year. He was he spent most of the season on the inactive list. He rarely dressed up at all. This is like the first game he actually played, and so we'll call this his debut uh, throughout the rest of the show tonight. And they also lost Brent Qualley to a concussion and replaced him with Max Sharping, who, of course, was you know, the Texans' de facto starting left guard during this season, who's been benched for Senio Calamente, now Brent Qualley. And like Qualley's been better than Sharping this year as well, too. And uh, he was able to come in and, and play as well. And so like, even with all this offensive line movement this week, Watson still um, produced. And you know this week, he did a little bit of everything. Uh, he found his tight ends who carry the Bengals in the arms of cheerleaders with some dump offs, as you saw at Farrell Brown um, carrying like you know th- like three Bengals into a mosh pit, and Darren Fells' touchdowns will too. Uh, they ran the drag flat option pretty well, and my favorite thing they I hate that play, but my favorite thing they do with this whenever they fake the flat, and then Watson quickly looks to the seam, and he was able to hit Kiki Cutie on a pretty good throw like that too. And like I like that aspect of it where there's some sort of like dynamicism and a different level to it too. There was a quick slant to David Johnson in the red zone, which is a nice play call where like Johnson's there against a rookie linebacker from Purdue, and uh, it's a matchup he should win pretty easily. He was able to win it too. And like Houston tried to do that with David Johnson this year. Now, this isn't like, oh, we've been waiting all year for David Johnson to finally be used in this way. Houston tried it repeatedly in the first few weeks of the season, and they had no success with it at all. Um, there's that sluggo route against Baltimore where you know, Johnson wasn't able to, didn't take his route the numbers well enough um, as Watson, or to the sideline well enough as Watson was trying to lead him away from the safety, and that led to an incompletion. And um, there's a couple of times this year where, like, Johnson's a wide receiver, and they tried him the ball, and it just didn't work out well. And uh, this is a good time where, like, it finally did, and it took 16 weeks for it to occur, uh, but it finally occurred here as well. And there was also the biggest difference in this game was that Watson actually had some throws downfield. Um, the biggest thing, like in Tim Kelly's offense, that's been the best passing offense Houston has had, you know, since Matt Schaub was here, you know, over the course of an entire season, is that it's been a lot of, like, spread passing offenses that create easy throws where, against man coverages, you know, Watson comes to the line of scrimmage and pick and pop and find his matchups pre-snap. And it's also an offense that's set up like that where you, know, you stretch zone defenses horizontally. You're able to find holes in the zone. And Watson, you know, his fourth year in the league has been really great, like reading defenses, finding his throw, getting the ball out quickly, and running like a really efficient offense this year too. And like he's second in passing yards this year. Um, he's thrown 30 touchdowns, which is the Texans franchise record. And he's only continuously gotten better year after year. And like I was kind of hesitant about naming him a top five quarterback this year. Um, I thought there was like something kind of off about, you know, his production. I thought some of it came in uh, garbage time numbers and that sort of thing. But after what he's done, you know, the last four weeks, you know, considering you know, some of the opponents he's played, you know, like India has a, has a really good defense this year, but also like the offensive line he's had, the skill position issues, the injuries they faced. Um, and then there's no doubt in my mind, like for Watson to have the season he had, considering everything the Texans have done to kind of hamstring him, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that Watson's a top five quarterback now. And uh, you can start using the word elite whenever you describe him as well, too. But the one thing this offense has been missing, though, is that verticality. And so Brand Cooks was able to catch two passes on throws over 20 yards. Um, Watson this game went two for five for 75 yards and threw one touchdown. And both of these completions went to Cooks. Uh, Cooks actually ran a vertical route again where he beat a cornerback one versus one. This week he had a double move against William Jackson the third, where he was able to get open down the sideline. And you know this year that has been really been missing from Houston's offense. 
you know, coming into week one this year, he had that calf injury and he was up against Legarius Sneed and he wasn't able to create the separation needed to catch a, a vertical route against him. And the problem with Cooks is that, you know, he's he's this tiny guy. You know, he's five foot ten. And so like he needs to create five, six yards of separation to be able to catch these vertical passes because he's not gonna jump over anybody at all to catch those passes. And so like anything that ham that hampers the speed at all, whether it's a calf strain or, you know, a bruised pinky toe or uh, you know, a slight foggy head, like anything that affects his ability to run uh really fast downfield is really gonna limit his play. And so we've seen that throughout throughout this entire season. And so, like, even though he he hasn't been on the injury list, and like we haven't seen those same calf strain uh, kind of issues kind of, kind of come up again at all, he still hasn't won these sort of routes. Um, the only time it really occurred was against Chase Claybrooks and the exorcism of Bill O'Brien, where you know, he had that tile line and was able to win two fade routes against him, where he had a huge amount of space. You know, being on the opposite side of the hash, um, going to the field side of the field, and. With that, like other than that, though, like Cooks hasn't really had much success at all uh, on those vertical throws, and this really has hurt Houston's offense this year because the idea going into the season was that you would just have you know, Will Fuller and Brand Cooks on the outside, and that would force defenses into a lot of too high shells to be able to stop those vertical passing routes because of the speed that they have, which would then open up the middle of the field for you know the seams, um, the short middle parts of the field too, and then it would also open up the run game because now you have to run against nickel. Uh, defenses and defenses that don't have that extra safety in the box um, and that never materialized at all and a big reason for that was just because Cooks has been unable to win these routes this year and so that was kind of like I don't know monu- I think monumental is too big of a word um, for this for what I'm saying about Brandon Cooks right now but like it was a very big play for him to actually pull this off um, tonight just because this sort of thing has been missing from the offense uh, for a long time this year and the other route he caught was his touchdown pass where the cornerback you know, squatted and the safety was supposed to cover over top over the top. Watson faked the play action. The safety kind of got held because of it. He did a good job holding with his eyes. And the throw was wide open and Watson showed you know some really good arm strength to be able to you know, throw from one side of the hash to the other to make that throw too. And like this isn't um, anything indicative of Cook's skill. You know, he just ran a field and was wide open and Watson was able to find him. It was more about the play calling and the play action and Watson's arm strength and ability to make that throw there. It wasn't because, you know, Cooks ran some great route. And again, like it wasn't indicative of his skill. And so like this leads me to with Cooks here because in entering week 17, you know, he's almost at the 1,000 yard mark. Um, this year he was only owed $8 million in salary. The Los Angeles Rams took on his entire bonus to trade him to Houston for a second round pick. And I think his dead cap hit was the most of all time. It was like $24 million or so. Uh, that's how badly they wanted to get rid of him and pick up a second-round pick instead of having him on this team. And next year, Cooks' salary goes up to $12 million. The year after that, it's $13 million. The year after that, it's $14 million. And Cooks is already 27 years old. And so with Cooks you know, being 27, with these speed issues, with his inability to win down the sideline um, on these throws, with his injury issues and the fact that he's a little guy and you don't really want him running routes along the short middle, you can't really use him in the screen game. Um, they try to make him a blocker. It doesn't really work out that well. He doesn't really have the profile of a guy that you know, wins from the slot because he lot, so much of his stuff is based around speed. In the slot, you're stretching the seam and trying to find that spot between you know, the safety and linebacker you can get crushed is more reserved for bigger wide receivers too. And so like for all those reasons, like I really don't like the idea of Cooks being in Houston in 2020 next year. I think for the production that he's had this year, for his age, 
for kind of diminishing speed we've already seen, like it wouldn't be worth keeping him around um, for next season for the $12 million cap hit that comes along with it too. And like, I know he almost has a thousand yards. I know he's the team's second best wide receiver. I know that there's worse number two wide receivers out there, but like volume isn't the same thing as efficient production. He's 32nd receiving DVOA this year. Um, he's been like, which is fine for again, like a number two wide receiver. It's not, not great at all. I don't think it's worth a $12 million cap hit. And so I do think with Cooks, Houston would be better off trying to trade him for, you know, a third round pick or a fourth round pick, whatever they could get from him, and then use that salary cap space to either get another outside wide receiver, um, and then use whatever left use like the four million or five million dollars left over and then be able to invest in other parts of the roster too. Because like Houston's in a spot next year where they're gonna have to keep Ronald Cobb. Um, they're not gonna be able to really release him until two thousand twenty one. They're gonna they have Kiki Cutie who you have in the slot. And it's so like even without Cooks, they still have the outside wide receiver spot. And like teams are bad because they pay, you know, pretty good players way too much money. Or they pay bad players way too much money. And they run a salary cap just because of that. Your team isn't hurt and you know, ruin you pay really good players a whole a whole lot of money. And like Wolf Fuller is a really good player. Like Wolf Fuller is worth a fifteen million dollar cap hit or a seventeen million dollar cap hit, whatever the franchise tag turns out to be. And like Wolf Floor is a dynamic wide receiver that can completely change an offense around. I still wouldn't consider him like a true number one wide receiver just because he doesn't create like the consistent first down carrying throws uh, or first down carrying throws that a true number one wide receiver makes. And he doesn't carry entire passing offense on his own. Like I think he's a 1B. He's a number two. He's like the perfect guy to have a DeAndre Hopkins, but he's not going to be, again, like that sort of uh, volume receiver needed to be like a, a quote unquote number one wide receiver like. You know, Calvin Ridley is, or Julio Jones is, or t- or Travis Kelsey is, or um, you know, Mark Andrews has been the last few weeks of the season again, and so you know, for that reason, like I think he's been better off tagging Fuller, getting rid of Cooks, trying to find somebody else on the outside, and uh, I think kind of the funniest thing about the Cooks trade too, like aside from the Jack Easterby's thirst, is that Houston would have been a lot better off if they had just taken a wide receiver in the second round um, with that pick that they used to trade for Cooks. Because they could have taken somebody like, you know, Clay Brooks or, I mean, uh, Claypool or, you know, T. Higgins. And like all those receivers for the seller cap hit that they have probably been more valuable to the offense than what Cooks has been this year. And so, like, I think Cooks is, I was really excited for Cooks over Houston, trade for him because of his film from 2018, not from 19, because he was a, he really had like a completely lost season in 19 after he suffered that concussion against Cleveland. But like in 18, he was such a dynamic vertical receiver. And he was known to be like, thought, you know, the idea of say he'd be more than a deep threat or he's more than a deep threat. And this year he hasn't been that. And it's like Cooks without his vertical uh, playmaking ability for most of his production come from deep crossing stuff take a while to open up. Like I just don't see um, a role in that in this offense for guys paid, you know, $12 million a year too. So the offensive line, it was really funny that a Cincinnati team with two real pass rushes, one real linebacker, only had one sack. And they gave 128 yards and 12 carries to David Johnson, which was 10.6 yards in attempt. And like this was an offensive line again that was completely retooled with Roger Johnson at left tackle, Max Sharpie left guard, Nick Martin at center, Zach Fulton right guard, Charlie Heck at right tackle. Like going into the season, you said this would be the Texans offensive line week 16. You think something terrible happened, or did Deshaun Watson die this week? Um, especially considering like what Cincinnati's defensive line was like. You're coming in the season as well, too, and some of the expectations for it, how 
uh, much fun I thought it was going to be like back in August, but here in December, it's been far from that. And like they had a really good game this week. Um, Robert Johnson and Max Sharping, they executed a backside scoop block. I almost cried when I saw it because you know, they haven't been able to do that all this year, which opened up a David Johnson run. Uh, Robert Johnson made some really nice down blocks and reach blocks to open up run lanes uh, through the middle for David Johnson. Like A lot of his like, little cutbacks were mainly because of some of the blocks that Robert Johnson made, just like completely moving guys from the B gap down all the way down to like, the opposite A gap almost and creating some wide open holes. And I think so I pull some clips for that and, and take a deeper look at the, the back end. Uh, some of those run blocks and Robert Johnson were like, things you pick up broadcast-wise and watching the game again uh, that you can't really see like the full footwork of it until after the fact. This also was like a really good game that shows why you throw to run. Um, David Johnson only had 12 carries. Watson had, I think, five carries on top of that or four carries on top of that. But there was another running back at all with any carries this game. And so Houston was able to consistently find themselves in a spot where they're playing against you know, nickel defenses. They're playing against boxes with only six defenders there. And if you just even get your hat on a hat um, and get up to the second level, like blocking two guys in the second level is so much easier than having to block you know, uh, three or four guys with a third linebacker or an extra safety kind of climbing down there as well too. And so Houston really had like a great game plan to attack a Cincinnati defense that bad linebackers and were able to create space in the running game through their passing game alone. And yeah, Watson only had five carries for 38 yards, and Houston didn't have another running back with a carry, and they all went to David Johnson. Like This is kind of like the, the ideal of what we were talking about like all last season with how many carries Carlos Hyde had, with Houston's you know, consistent and insatiable desire to establish the run that could never be quenched at all whatsoever. And like this game, again, is a great example of why throwing the ball sets up the run, and it doesn't work the other way around. And you know, Tim Kelly, I think, had a really great game plan to attack a Cincinnati defense that has bad linebackers, has had bad linebackers the past few years. And you know, this linebacker group's a little bit different because it's not like Nick Vigil in year four. But they have you know Jermaine Pratt. Um, they have younger players that like at least have some allure potential and have some talent, some speed. But these are still like this still isn't good linebacker core at all either. Too. Um, David Johnson also had you know some good runs. Like it wasn't just only created by his offensive line. You know, Johnson broke some tackles. He was able to lift his leg up and spin around some stuff. Um, it's been you know kind of fun to see him actually have another good run again. I know last week against Indy, he had that tackle break on the dump off. That was a throw me outside the structure of the offense by Watson. And that was the second good play he had this year. I think he had two more good plays this year. So we can chalk that up to four good David Johnson plays in 2020. And this was the type of player today that you trade DeAndre Hopkins for. You know, this is why you make that trade is for the 10.6 yards in attempt, uh, the receiving touchdown, the difference he made in the screen game. Just a guy who, like, whenever the ball is in his hands, uh, just tends to make plays all the time. He had three catches on three targets for 11 yards and one touchdown. You know, this is why you make the trade that you make to create the salary cap space to get a guy of David Johnson's caliber um, for DeAndre Hopkins. And, uh, and I'm joking, of course. And so that brings us to our first question from at Smooth Grandma. And he asked, how much is David Johnson worth now? And like, look, if you're an NFL team out there who has, you know, three running backs and you never really have a good feel at all for any of them, you don't really have a true number one running back. And like every offense is built around having your number one running back who can really carry you, um, especially guys like great, both the run game and the passing game, you know, like somebody like how Alvin Kamara has carried the Saints. Uh, offense for the entire this year. Uh, David Johnson's that, and he proved that again 
uh, this week in Cincinnati. So, like, if you're the Jets, if you're Detroit, if you're Pittsburgh, if you're Chicago, like, these teams that need a multi-dimensional back who can carry your offense uh, and can do so much with the ball in his hands, like, David Johnson's who you need. And I don't think, and, like, for a salary cap hit of, like, $12 million or so, a second-round pick is a steal for a player at David Johnson's uh, talent caliber. I think either one of those teams would be very fortunate to have a player like David Johnson on their roster. I think it should be something they should explore this offseason. Our next question is from Matt Eddie underscore Asan. He asks, if the Texans just never trade for Tunsil, never come in to Matt Khalil, how much worse would we be? Besides the collapse on the play that Deshaun Watson the four has pummeled on, the offensive line didn't look that bad. And again, this kind of comes down to you know the fact that Houston played an offensive line that was a little bit all over the place this game had the substitutes come in, and it was kind of their skeleton crew. And so it was really funny you know, this week to see all that occur and see you know, Houston have kind of one of their better offensive performances this year, um, scoring 31 points against Cincinnati. And it all came you know, without having their, their top offensive lineman in Larry Tunsil this week. And so like I've said this before you know, last year. I've said this before you know, this year. Um, it's one of these things I keep saying, and you know, all I'll keep saying is as long as I'm doing this, and like, look, Larry Tensel is a great player. He's a really great pass blocker. He's one of the five best pass protectors in the league. But he's not a transcendent player. He doesn't significantly alter Houston's run game. You know, Robert Johnson's been a better screen blocker. He's been a better run blocker than Larry Tensel has been this year. Um, as their you know swing tackle, he like Larry Tensel being out there doesn't mean like Houston runs more like pin and pull action on the outside that get them out that gets them outside in the alley like you know knocking guys out. They aren't like a really great dart run team or a great counter team because of Tensel. They aren't a great outside zone team because he's able to you know reach a two eye um, when the ball is being run away from Houston. So then like you know, Max Sharping is the easier path to the second level. Like he just doesn't do those things as a as a run blocker. As a pass blocker, you know, you'll see him do some things sometimes where he'll be blocking two guys with. Uh, with each one of his arms and be blocking two defensive linemen at once or, you know, have one hand on the B gap while he's sitting there feeling for, you know, the edge defender and kind of lock them out both out of each arm. Like those are really spectacular blocks. But like at the end of the day, Tunsil as a pass protector, what he allows an offense to do is that whenever you play Kansas City, Frank Clark isn't going to derail your entire offense. When you play Indianapolis, Justin Houston isn't going to derail your entire offense. When you play Minnesota, Yank Ngakwe, who now plays for Baltimore, isn't going to ruin your entire offense. Uh, when you play Baltimore, Matthew Judon isn't going to derail your entire offense. Like That's what Laramie Tunsil play, um, provides to Houston. But the problem with Laramie Tunsil, though, is that at the left tackle position, that's not worth two first-round picks and a second-round pick. That's not worth a salary of $21 million a year you can buy him with that. Like I think Tunsil on his own for that position, yeah, like I would pay him $18 million a year for a salary or whatever, but not whenever you factor in the picks that go along with it. And so like, the value just isn't there for the position that he plays. And that, you know, that stupid book and that stupid movie, The Blind Side, has completely like ruined everybody's understanding of you know, the off- the left tackle position, has completely overrated. And instead, what's more important is like having two competent you know, book and tackles that you allow your quarterback to be able to calmly step up in the pocket and have some sort of like you know integrity there on the interior. Like Kansas City is a great example of that. Like Mitch Schwartz is a really good pass protector. But like Schwartz is on the IR right now. You know, Mike Remmers is starting at right tackle. Eric Fisher is like maybe one of the you know 14 best left tackles in football, but he's not incredible. And Patrick Mahomes is still great this year. And again, like the quarterback is more important. The offensive design and scheme and structure is more important than the offensive line pass protection itself. 
And like again, Tensel's not worth what um, they traded for him for this game. So like, if they did make that decision, you know, I don't know how much better. I don't. I can't put value on how much better they are with Tensel. But it really isn't as dramatic as what it's made out to be. Like Houston didn't win two or three extra games because of Tensel. They wouldn't be a two-win team this year if they didn't have Tensel. There really isn't that much of a difference. Um, you know, with the without whenever you think about the entire offense and the entire, um, the entire production of the team, it just really kind of comes down to that one individual matchup, rather than you getting beat tremendously by it. And Watson has to worry about what's behind him. It just becomes negated, and that's really what um, Tensel's provided this year. So that takes us to our next question from at Confused Lefty, and he asked, "Would it be worth trading Tensel away given the cap in next season? And if so, could they get first round pick back for him?" I do think for sure you get first round pick back for Tensel. Again, like he's one of the top five pass protectors in football, and there is value to that. It just, again, isn't worth the value of $21 million, two first round picks, and a second round pick. But the problem with Tensel, though, is that he's owed $25.9 million in bonus money after this year. So if Houston would trade him, they would actually take a cap hit of $6.5 million in cap space next year. So it would actually hurt them. They'd actually have to pay more money in the salary cap if they trade him. They wouldn't save any space if they did so. And so I'm the, it's not worth the cap hit at all to trade Tunsil and only get a first-round pick back for him. But that being said, in 2022, whenever you would say $14.6 million if you trade him, I would 100% look to trade Tunsil in 2022. I don't even care if the secession plan is a left tackle. You can always find somebody in free agency. You can maybe draft somebody next year um, that you can eventually move into that role. Like maybe Charlie Heck can start right tackle in 2022, and Tyus Howard can play left tackle. I don't know. I don't think it really matters that much, but um, just the ability to gain an extra first-round pick, gain some extra cost-effective talent uh, to build around Watts, I think would be extremely valuable. And again, like with the cap savings with that too, and it all goes back to the fact that a left tackle is important, but it's not that damn important. So whenever, I mentioned Charlie Heck a second ago, and Heck actually played his first, you know, had his debut out there at right tackle, um, when I first watched Charlie Heck's film, whenever Houston drafted him, I first watched his left tackle video in 2019. I was like, this is the guy, this guy's one of the worst offensive linemen I've ever watched play. And that I got a message on Twitter. I can't remember the guy's name. Um, he's not listening to this, so it doesn't matter at all. But he told me to go back and actually watch him at right tackle in 18. And I did that. And like his film in 2018, right tackle is actually really good. He was a very good pass protector over there. He had some ability, some ability to block the, first, block the second level. Um, he was actually pretty good in combo blocks. He did some stuff in the screen game. And like he was a very, like he was a really good, you know, college right tackle. Left tackle, he's an absolute mess. He's a horror show. And so when Houston used the first round pick uh, to, to draft Charlie Heck, like they were taking a project swing tackle. They already had, they didn't know what to do with Robert Johnson at the time. They ended up signing him because Heck couldn't play left tackle, I guess. And uh, ended up with, using a high draft pick on this guy who's a, a project at a swing tackle position. And like whenever you look at the Texans going in 2020, a uh, project swing tackle is not something they were in dire need of. You know, all Charlie Heck allowed was that they would not have to call Chris Clark at all. You know, it made sure that if something happened to Tyus Howard, they weren't going to have to call Chris Clark and have him be out there. And then we see Chris Clark at right tackle. Um, with a three ten and one team playing a four and ten team, but that's all that uh, that pick ensured for Houston this year. And so, like with Heck at right tackle, like he was pretty good this game. Like he won some individual blocks. He actually reached the five technique on outside zone play, which is something Ty's Howard struggled doing this year. And he was matched up against Sam Hubbard in Cincinnati. 
And Hubbard is, you know, Cincinnati's second best pass pass rusher. Um, their best pass rusher is Carl Carl Lawson, who has a really great long arm. Like Carl Lawson's long arm is the only thing I really like about Cincinnati football right now. And uh, and like Robert Johnson, a great game against Carl Lawson. You know, Deshaun Watson was sacked once, and it came on the final drive of the game when Heck got be around the edge and give that forced fumble. But you know, Heck did a really good job picking up ET stunts. Um, he wasn't making these like same mental errors that Houston's offensive line has made throughout this year. He was able to sit down and squat on Hubbard's uh, you know, bull rushes. He's able to push him back around the pocket whenever he tried to go around him on the edge. Like just a really nice game. There was only one pressure he gave up that I saw. And then of course it all was kind of spoiled at the very end. Uh, when Hubbard beat with that chop rip move and was able to force that fumble on Watson and kind of hurt his arm in the process too. And it was kind of similar to that pass rush that Yannick Ngakwe always does, where he just like chop, rip, and leaps all at the same time. And I've been seeing kind of more and more this year, and it seemed like that was the same sort of move that Hubbard was going for that he was able to pull off against Heck to create that forced fumble. But, you know, like all in all, like this was a good game by Heck. I was impressed by how he played it right tackle, um, especially kind of going back and like thinking about his video this past year and just saying like, this guy's a project swing tackle who can play right tackle, can't play left tackle at all. And, uh, and again, like the issue that pick just comes along with that's not like a very important position for Houston this year. I think the most frustrating thing about though is like if Houston took a guard like Solomon Kinley, for example, in the fourth round, there's your succession of Zach Fulton. So whenever you release Zach Fulton next year, you have a guy who's already playing this offense, who has a year of football under his belt, who can come in year two and start right away and, you know, start the following year. And like we saw Tennessee do that with Nate Davis. Like Nate Davis was drafted, didn't play, took over about like week five or six, had some struggles his rookie year. And, you know, this year he's been absolutely you know, phenomenal. Like he was great last year as well too. Um it play at right guard for, you know, Tennessee. And like that's what Houston missed out on by taking Charlie Heck when they should probably take an interior offensive guard who could you know, get a year and then be able to start next year whenever Zach Fulton is gone as well too. So defensively, it kind of comes down to this was the Brian, this was the Brandon Allen game. He, the Texans have lost to quarterbacks like Matt McGloin, JP Lozman, Kelly Holcomb, Jamarcus Russell, Blaine Gabbert, but not Gabbert in Jacksonville at all. It actually took 2018 Blaine Gabbert playing in Tennessee or a fake punt, pat, fake punt pass touchdown. And like Harold Landry, you know, turning Martinez Rankin in the soup um, for Blaine Gabbert to finally be Houston. Blake Bortles, the four-year-old Matt, ha- Matt Hasselbeck, and other tremendously bad quarterbacks that beat Houston over the years. And so now Brandon Allen is another member of this prestigious club. Uh, I didn't know who Brandon Allen was. I forgot who he was this year whenever he started a few games earlier for Cincinnati. But he was actually that quarterback in Denver last year who had that really big game against Detroit. And then um, and they got benched for the guy from Northwestern, Trevor Simeon. And I, I don't know. He had, some, he had a few moments last year. I don't think Allen's like an atrocious quarterback. I think he could have some, you know, some juice as a backup quarterback out there. But he's not the type of quarterback that you want to see go 29-37 for 317 yards and two touchdowns. Um, not only that, like on throws over 20 yards, he was 5 for 8 for 147 yards and one touchdown. He only missed three throws less than 10 yards to the air. Uh, Cincinnati crushed Keon Cross and Vernon Hargraves on the outside, and they absolutely dismount Houston in, in the passing game. And like A.J. Green's been done since week one this year. Like he's not like a good wide receiver at all anymore. He's old. He's like, you know, the big old horse before he gets sent to the glue factory. Uh, he had four catches on seven targets for 64 yards. T. Higgins, who you know, really kind of reminds me of DeAndre Hopkins just because he's not like a really big speed guide, 
but he has great hands. He has really good footwork, really good releases. He knows how to like contour his body and find the ball in the air. Um, he has a definite size advantage over you know cornerbacks like Vernon Hargreaves. You know he had six catches on nine targets for nine nine yards. Alex Erickson was kind of unstoppable. He had six catches on six targets for six for eighty eight yards. And like Houston, um, since now he's able to not only beat Houston like through the screen game and through dump offs to. Um, to Pete Ryan and to Giovanni Bernard, but they were also able to beat him throughout the sideline of this game as well, too. And like the Texans' secondary this year, it really has been a make-a-wish foundation for aging wide receivers. You know, we saw T.Y. Hilton have this breakout game. Um, we saw the same thing from A.J. Green. You know, finally had like another good game, and maybe this may be the last like somewhat confident A.J. Green game uh, we'll ever see after he gets released by Cincinnati next year, who's not going to keep him around after you know, the kind of franchise tag they had for him as well, too. So one of the good things though about this game was that like Keon Crossens had some flashes this year. Uh, nothing that you would be like, there's a legitimate skill set here, or like Keon Crossens like really good at you know squatting and being able to play you know the flat and also keep his body in a position to be able to like cover the honey hole and cover two, or like he's really good at driving on crossing routes. Like nothing at all like that. Um, you know he's been beat more times than he's won routes, but like. Keon Crossan showed that there is something there, something more than what we've seen from Vernon Hargraves and Philip Gaines throughout this year. And so like, it was good to actually see you know, Keon Crossing a chance to play outside cornerback uh, with Philip Gaines hurt. And so Smooth, Gram- Smooth Grandma asked, is Keon Crossing the best defensive back left standing for Houston? Now, Crossing, as we now know, isn't as bad as Vernon Hargraves is or Philip Gaines is, but he's still bad. Um, there's plenty of issues with lateral movement. He struggles staying on top of routes. He struggles staying, finding the football. You know, his back was turning a lot of throws. Um, the best play he did have this week, though, was he had a fine play squeezing Higgins out of bounds on a vertical route. And he also had that, like, almost interception where, you know, Brandt Allen threw the slant route behind the wide receiver. Um, that cross and almost picked off, but, like, that's more of an issue of the quarterback. He was able to defend a pass as the ball is going to the wide receiver's body, you know. But again, he like he's beyond that slant route, you know. I think the only really good th- good play I'd say he made was squeezing T. Higgins out bounce on that vertical throw, and he had AJ Moore helping at the top of him on that one too. And like at the end of the day, trying to find any sort of like future Keon Cross, and I think is you know is pyritic. It's a waste of time. It's fool's gold. It's you know Keon Cross is probably is no different than Jeff Tarpinian or Marcus Gilchrist, or Chad Slade. It's just another name in the lost season, kind of like Tyrell Adams this year as well, too. I mean, more than anything, he's a special teams player. He's somebody who's going to play a lot of defensive snaps on a good football team. And, like, you know, maybe he'll be your fifth-best cornerback um, you know, next year, which is a, a fine thing if he needs to play in a pinch. You know, it's better than having, like, you know, Breon Borders out there um, or some of the problems that Tennessee may have had with their cornerback play. Where you know Boris is absolutely torched by you know Cleveland, their big loss earlier this year too. But yeah, he's smooth grandma. He probably is the best cornerback left on this team, which I think is maybe the sassest assessment of this defense you can possibly make. The Bengals also they have a bad run game. They've had a ton of offensive line you know management changes. Uh, Jonah Williams got hurt this year. Billy Miller was a second round pick. They tried to play at center again this year. It didn't work out. They added Quinn Spain off waivers. Um, you know, he's been pretty good at that spot this year. Like Spain's always like a pretty good, you know, offensive guard too in general. But this isn't a very good run game at all. Uh the Bengals have a lot of success against Houston, run the outside zone. 
And it was, again, like uh, just a ton of outside zone from him. This was Xavier Sofio retaining, uh, getting his starting spot back at left guard after he was benched earlier this year. This was Trey Hopkins at center, who's Cincinnati's best offensive lineman, and Quentin Spann at right guard. And they absolutely controlled Houston's front. Um, it was really kind of you know, embarrassing throughout this game to just like watch Carlos Watkins and watch Ross Blacklock and watch Charles Amenahu and just like see them fighting with Quentin Spain instead of playing the ball. Um, you know, Bobby Hart actually had a pretty good game at right tackle. And then their left tackle, Fred Johnson, was able to consistently like reach the defensive end on their outside zone game as well, too. And I mean, you just see a lot of guys like frustrated with the blocks in front of them, not playing their gap and playing their man and like trying to, you know, drive back somebody that doesn't matter at all. Um, and not having any sort of awareness for the ball. And again, like it's a lot of guys playing their man, they're not playing their gap, which has created you create a ton of easy rush lanes. And you know, with that sort of first level issues, the running backs were able to get in the second level unscathed, you know, really consistently from there. And the Texans did what they've been doing all year. It was a lot of Zach Cunningham missed tackles. It was a ton of Tyrell Adams missed tackles. Um, both players are absolutely hideous this game. You know, Lonnie Johnson Jr. is able to clean up Sam. Some same with AJ Moore. You know, Texans have trouble tackling at the cornerback position. And you saw that a lot, especially in the screen game this week, too. But, like, when it comes to Cunningham and Adams, like, I mean, the tackling this week, just like the Indianapolis game previously against Zach Taylor, was just absolutely putrid. It was putrescent. It was horrid. It was abominable. It was disgusting. It was awful. It was every single, you know, negative symptom you could come up with. And uh, it was, like, it was really frustrating to watch. Um, throughout this week because it wasn't like a Colts offensive line that has the allure of being like really great, even though they've had some problems to share. And I think a lot of their run game problems have more to do with the running back than you know the offensive line blocking itself. But like they've had some trouble um in with their outside zone game this year. And then you know, talent kind of went out and Zach Taylor was able to maintain that role and uh, have a better feel and kind of get more comfortable with the pro game, you know, once like week twelve hit or so. And like that makes more sense to have trouble tackling, you know, running back like Taylor. But to have this much problems against P. Ryan and um, to have this many problems against P. Ryan Bernard are just you know inexcusable at all. And so like Adams, as we've said in the show, like Adams isn't going to be a future inside linebacker for the Houston Texans. He's not a very good player. He's already 28 years old. A lot of stuff he does is like slinging and yanking and pulling. Um, he doesn't. He's not a very good coverage player. Like he'll make some big hits. He's made a few splash plays this year. But again, like if you're playing 62 games in the inside linebacker position, you're bound to run your way into some plays throughout the year. But more often than not, well, there's more negatives here than positive. Um, Cunningham is more interesting because, of course, he's the mainstay here. And the Texans paid him to be the integral center of the Texans' front seven. And he hasn't played to that standard at all this year. And this season really has exploited his limitations as a player. And these are a lot of questions that I had about Cunningham as a player you know, this past offseason. Whenever they paid him, they they paid him because Cunningham in previous on previous Texans defenses, he was able to play Will linebacker. He was able to play with DJ Reader in front of him. He was able to play Bernard McKinney. You know, on the strong side, McKinney would come down and knock guards back, um, create just like a a graveyard at the at the front level, muddy holes up, and all this allowed Cunningham to do is play on the backside, and he could just run past offensive guards trying to reach him and offensive tackles on the backside blocks and then deliver kill shots and running backs. Um, his run defense against Tennessee in their second matchup last year, is a per, or their first matchup last year, is a perfect example of that. And that win, he had a tremendous game as like a backside chasing tackler, but 
But now without Reader here in Cincinnati, who got hurt and is out for the year, and McKinney out for the year, and also just like the promise they've had along their defensive front in general, um, it hasn't it hasn't been there at all for them. And with the with the more expanded role at the inside linebacker position, you know Cunningham hasn't hasn't stepped up at all. Um, it's really has exploited limitations. A lot of the concerns that I had about him as a player that he couldn't be like the strong side linebacker. He what is he going to do whenever he has to deal with more blocks? What is he going to do whenever they're running outside zone at him and he's not merely chasing and tackling? Um, what is he going to do whenever guards come up and and climb up and hit him head on instead of having to chase after him and make angle blocks on him? And this year, like he hasn't been good at it in that regard. The other thing about Cunningham too is that he's quick, but he's not a good coverage player at all either. Um, he has trouble covering the best, you know. Really, he has trouble covering running backs and one versus one coverage. And like this goes back to last year too, where you know Christian McCaffrey got him, Alvin Kamara got him, who are really great running backs, and this sort of thing tends to happen. But even you know Kansas, like uh, Williams in Kansas City, was able to get him last year as well too a few times. Like it wasn't only. A, like these are the best running backs in the league. They were able to eat them alive. And this year he's had trail problems all throughout this year, like in man coverage against linebackers whenever he would have to funnel and cover the first guy coming on the flat as well too. Uh, and zone coverage roles, like he's not a good hook zone defender. Like you just watch kind of quarterback, quarterbacks throw slants like right past his ear. And like compare what he does compared to Darius Leonard, there's no question at all. Like this is what should look like. And then what Cunningham is doing um, isn't even close at all to that. And then in the past few weeks, like you've seen him have to carry, uh, carry the seam whenever Houston plays cover three. And uh, T.Y. Hilton got him really good. Alec, Alex Erickson got him really good uh, this week. I remember right about, the, right about later this week as well, too. Like Fred Warner had a great game in San Francisco's defense, ca- ca- uh, carrying the seam, you know, playing that hook, defending the slant routes by playing that hook as well, too. And Cunningham can't do that sort of thing. And it's like a good example of like, if Houston was a higher Robert Sala, Sala's not going to unlock Cunningham's potential. Like we know what Cunningham is, we know what he's good at. Sala's not going to be the guys and come and be like, "Oh, this is how you know you carry the seam." Like there's just like an athletic issue. There's a like a, a lack of awareness and ability, and a lack of feel of the passing and be able to make those plays. And so I don't think a different defensive coordinator is going to be able to get that out of him as well too. And so like, I like Cunningham. I think he found this very specific skill set. Houston got the utmost out of him that they could. And they paid him to be the center of their front seven moving forward. And he has not been able to play in that role at all this year. And like, this just makes me miss Bernard or McKinney a whole lot. Like, I know like McKinney's probably not going to be able to be here next year um, just due to the salary cap situation and what he's owed next year. And that's fine. Like, I understand guys get old, like they disappear. It's kind of the hard things about being a football fan is that, you know, these sort of teams, these players that you really like have a very short shelf life, especially someone playing inside linebacker like McKinney. And it's so like, I, I know it's probably me the end of him there. Um, but like McKinney really was the better linebacker of the two. He was able to open up and create so much for Cunningham. He had the dirty job, the more difficult job. And now I've seen Cunningham kind of be more in that role for Tyrell Adams. And the Texans linebacker career has been, again, it's been an abomination this year at the inside linebacker position. And Cunningham did not step up. And you know, the next leadership group is going to get more out of him than what um, Houston was able to this year especially when you consider the salary cap problems that they're already in and having and paying Cunningham as much as they are to get what they have out of them just hasn't been good enough at all. So our next question is from Asmuth Grandma. And he asks, why is Tyrell Alves being put in coverage in goal-to-go situations? So uh, the Bengals are able to score a touchdown because they had Adams and Cunningham uh, playing man coverage at like the two-yard line. And uh, since that, kind of spread out like a four-wide receiver set. 
and they ran a rub between the two. And so watching Tyrell Adams and Zach Cunningham try and pass a rub on the goal line was one of the more funnier things we've seen this year. And of course, led to an easy touchdown. Our next question is from at Eddie underscore Hassan. And he said, how many off seasons until this defense is competent again? Um, I think at least two. I think next year, you know, without a first and second round pick, again, with the salary cap problems that they have, and the fact that they have issues at, you know, pass rusher and at cornerback, which are very premium positions that usually cost a lot of money to fix. Um, I think, and also like the Texans have forced only eight turnovers this year, I believe. They've, they've forced less than 12, which is kind of like insane for um, in a single season. Uh, with some better turnover luck, because again, turnovers are kind of more indicative of luck than, luck than actual skill. Um, because of that, like I do think with some better turnover luck and with some better internal development of players they already have here, because a lot of problems that Houston has on defense isn't necessarily that, you know, they they did remove talent from the defense. Their key players that are really good here are older than not as good at all anymore. But they've also haven't gotten enough out of the players that they've drafted and signed, you know, playing this defense. And like Blackwalk's a good example, Watkins is a good example, Omenahu's a good example, um, Jacob Martin's a good example. You know, I think they got the most that they could out Prince Scarlett. Um, Elijah Johnson Jr. is a perfect example. You know, they haven't gotten the most out of their younger players they have here. And so potentially the new defensive coordinator, new head coaching staff, uh, he'll be better like at coaching individual positions and players. You know, I think there's a chance for them to be like maybe 20th next year. I think 20th, though, would be the absolute ceiling. I couldn't see a world where Houston's better than 20th in, uh, in defense next year. And so I think it's going to take at least two off seasons. And uh, even then, like that's me being as optimistic as possible instead of being just like a disgusting realist as uh, I usually am. Our next question is from at Exiled in Texas. And he asked, how is it mathematically possible to have so many bad coaches? You'd think you would fluke even one or two average guys, even as assistants. I don't know what the algorithm is that will give me a probability it states out why or what this mathematically possible uh, limit is in this situation. But yeah, like this has been a big problem um, you know, for the Texans this year. And like the clips that Rivers McCown posted earlier this year is really funny. Whenever it was each position coach kind of talking about the Texans this year and what's been going on with them. And some of their own thoughts, their own players, like Unreal. You know, the Vernon Hargreaves comment, you know, really kind of sticks. The Winnie Merciless comments have really kind of stuck as well, too, um, from those interviews. And like, that was the only time they've spoke at all. Um, it also kind of makes, it remi- this reminds me as well, like some people I've talked to who actually go to Texans practices and watch the team you know, during the Bill O'Brien era. And a lot of things I've heard is that there was a lack of high-level coaching at the Texans practices where you know, the practices themselves are more about game planning and preparation for the week ahead, not so much about like correcting mistakes from last week, correcting technique issues, um, correcting like, you know, cut, like, you know, issues in scheme where they're missing assignments. It's more that we're going to do these things. You need to learn how to do them. You have to know how to do them. And we're just going to run through this to make sure our game plan is you know, well and, and ready, uh, you know, for this upcoming week. And so there just was a general lack of like coaching and discipline and teaching that I've kind of heard about people who have, you know, been the Texans uh, practices during the Bill O'Brien era itself. And so I think that kind of goes along with it. I don't know how bad these guys are at position coach level, or it's just like, this was what, you know, was dictated to them from um, O'Brien at the time. But yeah, like it really is a situation where like no position coach on this team should be on the Texans next year and nobody in the front office should be in the Texans next year. 
none of the coaches should be in the Texans next year. But like that being said, I do think the coach who's done the best job this year is Tim Kelly because Tim Kelly has like you know Watson playing at top five level right now. Um, this has been the best Texans passing offense. It's not from those like few like five like really hot weeks in 2017 when it was like the jet sweep vertical passing offense that Watson was running as a rookie that Bill Bryant dumbed down for you know, him in his first year in the league. And also like who started kind of quickly because he wasn't prepared for that. He was prepared for Tom Savage to be the starter in 2017. And like this is still though the best passing offense Houston has had since Matt Schaub was here, you know? And so like for Tim Kelly to be able to do that and be able to get like more out of Watson than O'Brien did, you know, he's been the best uh, coach the Texans have had this year. And even then, like, I still feel like he's barely a scratch the surface on what the Sean Watson offense can look like, too. And, you know, like, the future is Watson. He's the one thing that matters. Uh, nothing else here really does at all whatsoever. So before it's tonight's show, and, and I have uh, some round kind of thoughts I have from this game after, you know, watching the video and, and watching the game again. And spending way too much, like, this is, it's, I'm very kind of sick with myself how much time I've spent kind of watching this game and thinking about this game and writing about this game and now talking to myself about this game. And, you know, I think here's when the lunacy finally comes around, the men with white coats, uh, you know, break down my door and go send me in the ambulance, you know, to a, to a pasture up in upstate New York. And, but like, so these are some random thoughts I have from this game. And then in addition, some other listener questions we've had too. Um, one of the funniest parts of this game for me was on third and seven, the Texans called a quick flat to Collie Waring, where in the smallest point fought, uh, smallest point font possible, Chad Hansen was trying to carry it to open up Kahali, create first down, and it just led to a quick throw in the flat that was tackled immediately. Like this was Texas football in 2016, where it was just like two high safeties, uh, name redacted, being unable to you know make any sort of downfield throws with two safeties back there, and not having the short term accuracy be able to you know, generate any sort of like easy, uh, quick throwing offense at all. And so their entire passing offense just led to him throwing in the flat and checking down the flat to C.J. Fedoritz over and over and over again, unlike third and seven for four yards and then punting. And that gave me, you know, flashbacks there uh, completely immediately. And so like, even though Bill O'Brien's gone, like, he's still not entirely gone. He won't be entirely gone until, like, 2023 when nature has finally healed itself and all the damage he's done to this football team has disappeared. But, like, at least for this year, this was such a Bill O'Brien play call and you know, really kind of brought a smile on my face. Uh, there were some funny Anthony Weaver play calls too, like we've kind of joked about um, and brought up and analyzed the season. One of which was Jacob Martin playing a snap as a slot defender. Uh, I, I still couldn't believe it that you have Jacob Martin playing man coverage in the slot. Uh, absolutely insane. And like, it reminded me of another clip that Rivers posted of Anthony Weaver talking about Jacob Martin, how he's like, well, he's a complete player. He's good against the run. He's not good against the run. Um, he can rush on the exterior, which he can do. You know, he has some really great speed and has some really great pass rushing moves, and they all come together and can create enough pressure, enough sacks, and warrant you know him being like your fourth best or fifth best pass rusher. Um, and especially maybe more so in an expanded role. Uh, hopefully, we'll see him in next year. And also, he's good in coverage. He's not good in coverage. You know, we've seen him get being coverage a ton times this year. We saw him get being coverage on a big touchdown pass against Kansas City last year in the postseason too. Like he's not good in coverage. That's not what he's good at. Um, we see him used as an interior rusher a ton this year, which has been insane as well. But yeah, him playing as a slot uh, slot defender uh, was another good Anthony Weaver example. Another thing that was kind of funny, in addition to you know the Tyrell Adams, you know Zach Cunningham 
uh, rub route trying to pass, which is like a zebra call or a banjo call whenever you're trying to switch that, was they ran a three-man rush on third down where they had two hook defenders, and they dropped Charles Amenahu in the zone coverage as a third hook defender. So they have three guys covering the short middle of the field, two linebackers and Omenehu, and they still complete the pass. Like still, with three guys covering seven yards of horizontal width of the field, they were still able to find a hole in the zone because nobody has any sort of idea of any of the routes going along around them. Nobody checks the slot. Nobody's checking anything at all. And uh, Allen has an easy, easy throw you know, between both of them to convert for the first down. And that one really got me pretty good as well, too. Um, Cincinnati running a rub route against Vernon Hargreaves that was completely unneeded. Like, just run the vertical throw with, to you know, Higgins against Hargreaves. You have like an eight inch you know, difference in height there. Just run it. You don't need your sample to get in the way of anybody. Just run the, run the fade. Run the slot fade. You don't need any help at all. Just go out there, call it, and do it. Uh, that was completely unneeded. It was an easy reception that was overturned because of it. I, I also mentioned this earlier. Like, again, Higgins does remind me somewhat of DeAndre Hopkins. But, like, whenever going back to that, I mean, it's like a Keystone Light version of it. Like, I'm not saying he is DeAndre Hopkins. I'm saying this is, like, the most watered-down way possible. Like, he's reminiscent of him, and they have, like, a, a similar level of skill set. But how great that skill set is, you know, of course, is in, is nearly the same level. But it'll be interesting to, like, watch, like, the NFL going forward for the next, you know, I guess, like, 12 years or whatever, how this rookie class kind of plays out. Because, like, even the undrafted wide receivers from this class have been great. Uh, like, even, like, the fourth and fifth-round picks from this draft class have been great. And so it's going to be kind of fun to see, like, how it plays out, especially in the first two rounds. And, like, I think Judy's probably the most talented. You know, Simmons, of course, has been the best receiver from this draft class. I think, um, you know, Claypool is, like, a super talented vertical receiver. And if you play with a quarterback, you could actually throw the routes that he's good at running. It may have gone a little bit differently, too. And, like, I don't know, Higgins is going to be interesting in Cincinnati. And I think he's going to be easy. I think he's easily going to be able to replace A.J. Green next year. And they're not going to miss A.J. Green at all. Um, whenever he moves on next season. Also, with this DeAndre watching DeAndre Hopkins in Arizona, like Hopkins misses the Sean Watson so much right now. Like nobody's really mentioning this and nobody wants to say this, but I know his heart is so empty that he's playing with Kyle Murray instead of Deshaun, especially the level that Deshaun's playing at too. And I'm so tired of watching the Arizona Cardinals where it's just like, all right, our entire offense on third down is we're gonna run trips right and then we're gonna get a one versus one match from the backside with Hopkins. And we're going to run a speed out. And we're going to do that every time. And that's all we're going to do. And we're not going to throw anything vertically. And uh, it's just so, it's so, it's so dumb and it's so stupid. And I really kind of hate that too. Uh, I do have something nice to say that Lonnie Johnson Jr. has been a much better tackler these last few weeks. Like he's actually wrapping up now. And like, I can't believe it. I'm very proud of him. Like these are tackles, of course, that are like 10, 12 yards in the field, but He's wrapping up. He's running through the tackle. He's not stopping and diving. Um, he's keeping his head up. Like he, the t- whatever they're doing has been working for him. You know, the tackling drill dummies have worked. Um, you know, footwork guy couldn't help him in coverage, but at least whatever they're doing in practice right now is helping him as a tackler a whole lot. So our next question is from At Smooth Grandma, and he asks, "Is Pharaoh Brown human?" Uh, you know, Pharaoh Brown did, ca- you know, again he did carry, you know, six Bengals for you know big play that. Saw the game diminished by Nick Martin pulling a tail of the wand and leaping over the pile to try like shoving him after the play was already dead. Uh, but yeah, like, I really like Farrell Brown. 
I'll still say that Farrell Brown is the best blocking tight end in Texans history because uh, I don't have any video of Mark Bruner. I don't have any old VHS tapes of Joel Dreesen. You know, I'm sick, but I'm not that sick. And you know, maybe Dreesen is. I don't know. I think I can find coaches some of Dreesen. And Dreesen, I want to watch play again because he had a sick soul patch. And in Denver, when he won a Super Bowl after he followed Owen Daniels there to go play with Gary Kubiak, um, he had these bicep tattoos that were that said more faith on the le- on the right bicep and more miracles on the left bicep. And you know what? If that doesn't make you want to go to church, whatever church it is that you go to, nothing in this world will. So more faith, more miracles, and that's going to be our motto for 2021. Um, so this year, there's one game left. It's the Houston Texans against the Tennessee Titans. Derrick Henry is currently at 1,777 yards. The Titans, if they beat the Texans, they win the AFC South because they'll have a better record in the South. Um, both the Titans and the Colts went one versus one against each other. The Titans went 2-0 against Jacksonville. They're 1-0 against Houston. The Colts, of course, swept Houston this year. But the Colts made a tremendous mistake. They lost to Garner Minshew in Week 1. Minshew went like 19-20 for that game. And because they lost in Jacksonville Week 1, the Colts may lose the AFC South as a result. And they may have to win this week to ensure a playoff spot as well, too. So if Tennessee wins, they win the division. If Tennessee loses and Indy wins, um, then the Colts win the division. If the Colts lose to Jacksonville, they're probably going to miss the playoffs entirely as well, too. So with that being said, with one game left, there are still things to play for as long as you're not the Houston Texans, who could play the role of the spoiler if they could pull it off. But Henry, Mr. December, the Bumble Snowman, uh, with 1,777 yards, he's 1,000% going to break 200 against Houston. Like, I really have no doubt in my mind he's going to do it. He'll break 2,000. Uh, this is a really bad run defense. They gave up 200-plus yards to him last time they played. I, I really don't see it not happening. And the other thing, too, like, I know we had some conversations about, like, should Watson play or not? I think after the almost injury, you know, last week with Hubbard coming around the corner, um, with him, like, diving at the goal line and having some kind of scrambles that got a little hairy, like, I think, I think uh, Watson should sit this week. I think we've seen enough of it. It's been 16 weeks. He has a franchise touchdown record. You know, he's thrown for 4,500 yards already. I don't really see what playing his Tennessee will bring out of him. And, uh, and like, I think it's time. I think it's time to sit down Watson. No, this isn't because my own, you know, selfish love I have for the Tennessee Times at all whatsoever either. But regardless, we'll be back on the show later this week. Um, be on the lookout for that on New Year's Day. The first podcast you listen to 2021 should be a NFL Week 17 preview uh, with my good friend Taylor as we'll preview Week 17. And I guess we'll probably talk about mainly playoff games like Pittsburgh-Cleveland. Um, we'll talk a little bit about Houston-Tennessee. We'll talk about Los Angeles-Arizona. We'll talk about probably Dallas-New York and Philly-Washington as well too. Um, the game's the biggest playoff ramifications. We'll talk about those next next weekend. Be on the lookout on that for Friday. And then, of course, we'll be here talking about the Texans-Tines game. Uh, because we're completionists, and we'll either do this on Sunday night or Monday night sometime. But until next time, Matt Weston, thank you for listening to Valorant Radio. And you know what? Thanks for being on tonight, Matt. You did a great job. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. 
And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. 